I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and this is the Feed the Ball Salon, a podcast where different personalities get together to talk about golf courses, architecture, and the role that design plays in how we all enjoy the game of golf. We throw ideas around, speak off the cuff, sometimes seriously but most often not, and generally chat as anyone would amongst friends. Joining me and my co-host, golf course builder Jim Urbina, the man who knows everyone and has been everywhere for Volume 16, is course designer and professional golfer Tom Lehman, the Open Championship Champion Golfer of the Year in 1996 when he won the Claret Jug by two strokes at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's. Lehman still competes professionally on the PGA Tour Champions, but over the last several decades, he's also been active in course design along with current partner Chris Brands. While best known for their acclaimed work creating the Dunes Course at the Prairie Club in Nebraska, Lehman and Brands have also worked extensively in Arizona and in Lehman's home state, Minnesota. They have one major project coming up in that state, in the Brainerd area, a remodel of an existing 36-hole complex that will coincide with the addition of a new 18-hole course. Though Lehman has spent a lifetime playing tour setups and attempting to score as low as possible, his views on design and what he prefers to play align more closely with architectural greats from the past, as well as with Jim Urbina. Before we get to that conversation, though, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to the Feed the Ball podcast wherever you download your entertainment, and give the program a star rating and review so we know how we're doing. Better yet, share the podcast with friends, co-workers, and family members who love golf by tapping the little square box with the up arrow in it. You can also give me a follow on Twitter and Instagram at Feed the Ball, and I'd suggest you follow Urbina too, but he's too smart to be on social platforms. And keep an eye out for my features in Golf Digest magazine. Currently, I've got a story on the most significant modern changes at Augusta National and how they impact the tournament. And in late April, we'll be releasing the latest ranking of America's 100 Greatest Courses. And now, let's get to the conversation. You know, Derek, when we talk about architecture and we talk about the skills required to be in the design business, to be an architect, to be a golf course builder... I always think about this quote from Alistair McKenzie. Do you mind if I read it? No, I'd love it if you did. And I quote Dr. Alistair McKenzie. The golf course architect must have the sporting instinct. And if he has had a training in many and varied branches of sport and has analyzed those characteristics, which provide a maximum of pleasure, excitement in them, so much the better. It is essential that he should eliminate his own game entirely and look upon all the constructional work in a purely impersonal manner. He should be able to put himself in the best position of the best player that ever lived and at the same time be extremely sympathetic towards the beginner and the long handicap player, end quote. I think that to myself when I think about who are building these golf courses, who are designing these golf courses, who thinks about how the game should be played, how the strategy should be played, how it should be incorporated. And I think McKenzie said, you should be able to put yourself in the best players' minds as well as be sympathetic to the beginner. And I think to myself, can every architect do that, every designer do that? Do you find when you're playing golf courses that some architects don't have that sympathetic eye to the beginner? Yeah, I definitely do. And it applies to everybody. It's 
And this is one of the reasons why I think it's going to be valuable to have Tom Lehman come on because he has that ability and we want to ask him, is, is he able to kind of turn that on and off? I think a lot of it, you know, most people approach golf from their own perspective of it. If you're a, a one handicapper, like you see golf courses in a different way, like you have a different expectation of what you want in a golf course and what you think makes a good golf course. And it might have to do with how does this golf course challenge you? You know, how, how does this golf course force me to execute these shots that I know I'm capable of? Whereas somebody who is a, a 20 handicapper has a, that's not what they're looking for at all. And that's not what they value. And the same would go for a designer or a developer. You know, everybody comes at it from their own point of view and from their own experience, you know, and, and the, in the context of Tom Lehman and also in the context of that uh, Alistair McKenzie quote you just read, you know, we think about the previous generation of tour player designer, whether it was Jack Nicholas or George Fazio or somebody like that. And and the courses that they built, especially early on in their careers in the you know late 60s into the 70s and 80s, those golf courses were not known for being generally very accommodating toward the bogey golfer. They were, you know, the, they were sort of, you could see often developed through the eye of a, of a very experienced player. And, you know, and th- those go- golf courses are fine. There's a place for that historically, you know, over the last 60 years, that's been valued, but we're definitely getting a- away from that mindset as an industry now. And, you know, the work that we've seen from Tom Lehman is interesting because it's it, it, at least the Prairie Club, you know, which is what he's most known for, uh, definitely has that the latter, the appreciation and the respect for the bogey golfer and, and allowing somebody to have fun and, and work their ball around the golf course in their own way. And, you know, I think about it in my and when people ask me, you know, one of the questions I hate, Derek, when, when I interview for jobs is what's your handicap? <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, how, how good are you? And because now I'm going to be judged how good I am in the game of golf. Now, how not how good I am in the game of construction and designing and building a golf course. And that's what always kind of irks me. What does it matter how good I am? Because I think of Mackenzie and Maxwell and 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 Thomas. They were, they were players. Oh, Tillinghast, they were players, but they weren't expert players. And yet they designed some of the best golf courses in the country and around the world. So when somebody asked me when I interview for a job, what's my handicap? I hope that that doesn't deter them from thinking that I don't understand how the game should be played. But I think I'm more sympathetic to the bogey golfer than I am to the expert. So it's funny how everybody perceives what are the best qualities for a golf course designer builder? Do you ever feel that the how you answer that question about your handicap has impacted whether or not you've been hired? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, does, wouldn't that tell, would that it's a follow up then? The way you answer that question, maybe not. Uh, maybe it leads you to to being passed over does that do you, in your mind in those situations does it correlate to the the type of golf course or type of renovation that club wants or, or do you think that they're maybe going a different direction because they don't think that you can deliver a quote-unquote championship testing style of golf that they want or is it just they, they just prefer a better player to design their course <laughs> They just want to hang around with a guy who could have actually hit the ball. That's right. Yeah. That's a real <laughs> thing too, though. You know, 
everybody well, like you know, everybody's impressed by great golf. Oh um, yes, but, I am. Yeah, so so I mean, I guess another way to approach that is you would you know that there are certain clubs around the country that really pride themselves on having um, a, a testing golf course, a championship cal- yes. caliber golf yes. course, a tournament ready yes. golf course, and uh, you're based on what I, what I think I know of you. That's you're not the ideal person to deliver that. You could, you understand it, you're capable of it, but that's not what you're known for, and, and probably not what you prefer to do. So. Does that factor into I mean, uh, your interview process and your experiences when you say I'm not a you know I'm not a two handicap you know are they are you even in the right room to begin with? <laughs> it's funny. Last year I interviewed for a job and I said, "Are you sure you got the right guy here?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 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 they said, "Well, sure we are we are sure," but it's it's funny, Derek. I know how to make a golf course hard, but do I want to? That is the question. And if you want to make golf courses hard and, 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 and test the best players, I know how to do that. But I wouldn't say that I'd have much fun creating that style of golf course architecture. I tend to always go back to where I, I formulated my best ideas, and that was on the links lands of Scotland and Ireland. And so – to make a golf course hard, I don't know that that would be my my cup of tea. And so when somebody says, what's your handicap? I say, I always refer back to, uh, I say, well, I golf just like McKenzie and Maxwell and Thomas. And and so because they can't look at their handicap on the, on the uh, handicap board, uh, they don't know how to judge me. And that's that's the hardest part. What how do I handle that question? And how do I move forward past that? Oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. He he's not a very good player. I mean, you'd like to think that that in this day and age, you know, we can understand that uh, excellence playing the game doesn't translate into excellence in producing a great course. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of you know the guys that are that are are doing the best work right now, I don't know that any of them are scratch golfers. Uh, so, so nobody should really be asking that question unless you are trying to uh, put out a product for your club or your clientele. That's hard. And we know it's not difficult to make a hard golf course. It's a, you know, architects have been saying that for generations. It's that's the easiest yeah. thing is to make a hard golf course. I remember having a conversation early in my, you know, writing career with Ed C, uh, the late, partner to Arnold Palmer in the Palmer Design Company. And he said, he said, you know, I, it's easy to make a hard golf course. Think about the, the golf course that you grew up playing. It could be just a public course. You could hold a U.S. Open there. You just, all you do is, you know, you put the tee markers as far back as they possibly can, build some new ones, grow up the rough, shrink the fairways down to 22 yards, and just make the greens rock hard with rough around them. You know, you could host yeah. a U.S. Open there. There's and there's no trick to it. There's no design element into that. So I agree with you. And you know, the the pursuit of difficulty, I think, is a will always be there in some on some level. But because because people do value that, there's definitely a component to golf where people want to be challenged. They practice hard. They have great equipment. They want to go out on the golf course and see if they can execute it. That's part of it. But it is finally coming more into balance over the last 10 years, 15 years, with the other component that McKinsey and you were talking about, and that's the fun aspect of it. 
going out and enjoying yourself and not having to be asked to execute great shots over and over and over again to to procure some sort of level of enjoyment. And for for me to to understand that Donald Ross was a very good player, to understand that McDonald uh, thought of, thought him, CB McDonald thought of himself as being a very good player, Ben Crenshaw being a very good player. They all built golf courses that I love to, to, to play and, and, and to be on. So I know that there's that fine line, but <clears throat> to make sure that you uh, understand what the best player is going to do and be sympathetic to the beginner and long handicap player, a must in my, uh, in my opinion. And this all folds neatly into the conversation we're about to have with Tom Lehman about uh, how he approaches design. As we, as I said a moment ago, you know, he's best known for the Prairie Club, this really gorgeous, spacious place out in the Sand Hills that has so much dynamism and flexibility. And yet, for a period of time in the in the mid to late nineties, he was one of the the greatest golfers in the world, and he excelled on golf courses that were difficult and were narrow. I mean, he had a string of of runs in the U.S. Open on some very very difficult golf courses that was extraordinary. Uh, he was he was the number one ranked player in the world for a while, so he as much as anybody has had to visit these two realms, the realm of, of difficulty and, and challenge and professionalism and, and execution for, and then in architecture, the realm of creating, you know, being handed this amazing environment and, and maximizing it in a way that he's probably not as a player program to, to think or to, uh, to proceed in. And, I've seen the Prairie Club, and it is wide open, big fairways, generous landing areas, and there's some there's some uh, testing golf there included. But I like the way he laid it out. I like the the width of of the fairways, the generosity, the size of the greens, and so uh, he obviously uh, understood the importance of, of uh, the fairness. Oh, I hate that word. Fairness. I can't believe <laughs> you just said that. <laughs> the old F word. Strike that from the record. <laughs> Forget I cut that out of there, would you? <laughs> it's just he, he understood that <clears throat> the width was going to give all levels of players, including uh, people like me, uh, the chance to, to steer it around the golf course. That's why I'm looking forward to talking to him as well. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about the Prairie Club, and we'll see what else we can get into with him. Um, he's a unique guy. He, uh, it's interesting to be able to talk to one of the, the world's greatest players and also somebody who's done uh, incredible work on an incredible property designing golf courses. So I'm looking forward to it, Jim. I hope you are. I am. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. This is uh, Tom Lehman. I've never met Tom in person. I've watched him play. Uh, my game is just like his, Derek. I've seen uh, you, your game, yeah, and Tom's yeah. On, from a distance, and I couldn't tell the you difference. Could- you can't tell a difference in swings between Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I probably wouldn't doubt that to not be true. My swing is not exactly pretty, but it, it, it is efficient, though. It's effective. And Jim's is, too. He, he, uh, he's he got a little uh, bump-and-run driver that he plays from anywhere on the golf course that's pretty impressive. Wow. That takes some skill, a bump-and-run driver. Yeah. <laughs> we, were on, we were on a par-3, 175-yard hole. I pull out the driver. Derek looks at me like, you're a weirdo, and, <laughs> and I, did. I, I I make a sand save for for uh, no, I actually missed the sand save, but I 
was there, Tom. I was there with my driver. It was good. That takes some skill. I have to tell you what, it takes skill to hit that 175 driver. And I can tell you what, I learned it from the Lynx lands of Scotland. Keep the ball down. You should know that as well as anybody. You know, you hit, you, if you hit your line over there, you can play the game. That's exactly right. If Thank you, you for joining line, us, you, by the way. You're going to struggle. <laughs> Tom, we... I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but one thing I'd like to start off with is uh, a golf course in Valentine called Frederick Peak. And first of all, I think oh. that that name is a little got to be a little tongue in cheek. I mean, I know there's some great geology around the river in Valentine, but Peak is a pretty generous term. Uh, I, I guess it's all relative. But what a fun what a fun golf course! And it's ten. This is a ten hole golf course that that you and Chris Brands yeah. built. Um, it, it's yeah. a small town. It's just something that. Uh, I think you probably took what the you can speak to this, but you kind of took what the what was available and made the best of it. And what a what a concept, Jim and I talk about this a lot. Is just every community should have just accessible, fun public golf that's right at the doorstep, and that that's how we generate interest in the game. And but anyway, tell us tell us about Frederick Peak and and your thoughts on that. Well, Frederick Peak, it it is a somewhat large hill, <laughs> you know, in an area. Frederick Hill doesn't hill. quite have the same ring. Well, it's, it's not, you know, it's not peak in the most defined way you use the term, but it, uh, for that part of the country, it is, it is a, and now definitely a, a noticeable feature. But the thing that's really great about that is that the town of Valentine had a nine hole golf course and it was a leased piece of property and the lease ran out and they didn't renew the lease. So there was, it was without, without a golf course. And, uh, of course, 3000 people live there. They have their own high school. It's the, the capital of, uh, of the County of, uh, Cherry County. And, uh, so they really wanted a golf course. And so the whole town came together to, to, you know, pull, uh, just you know, pull something out of the hat. And so really the town built the course in the town, you know, everybody out there, they, they, they know how to run equipment. They know how to, to do drainage. They know how to dig trenches. They know how to irrigate. I mean, they, they, they're all ranchers. They know how to do that stuff. And so the town just came together and kind of formed a workforce and they graded it and they uh, did some rough shaping. They had a couple of guys come in who were, you know, professionals at shaping and shaped the features. And, you know, but it really was a, it was a town uh, inspired, a, a, a town, um, they implemented the plan as a town as, as a group and they, they just did the work. I mean, it was really a wonderful experience to, to see the whole town just kind of out there working, building a golf course together. And, and so, you know, it's not um, Pine Valley, you know, but it's a fun little golf course and it's got some real memorable shots. And, um, you know, I think as time goes by, the you know, they'll kind of fix some of the issues with the maintenance, uh, but it's overall, you know, it's a really fun little place. And again, you know, the, the idea of 10 holes um, you know, is, is outside the norm. Uh, you know, but it was like, well, look at, we have, you know, these holes that are getting out there, but we're missing a hole, you know, you know, in there somewhere to get back properly. So why not just, you know, build an extra hole and have 10 holes who, who really cares? It's a, it's a community golf course. It's a public golf course, you know, just, let's just have 10 holes and, and make it work. And they did. Yeah. And that's something that I, I feel like maybe golf might be moving in that direction where we kind of get off the nine and 18 hole standards, which will always exist. That'll always be a, a elemental part of the game because it's, it's historically valid and it's what people expect, but there are so many opportunities to, to just take a piece of land and fit as many good golf holes on it as you can. And I think that yeah. the more we see it, that concept, the more it will be acceptable and it'll just kind of perpetuate itself because it's, it's a lot more affordable than trying to build and cram an 18 go- hole golf course on a particular piece yeah. of land as well. 
Yeah, it's, uh, I think we're, we're really overwhelmed with the concept of championship golf and championship golf courses. It has to be 18 holes. Thank you, know, you a Tom. Golf, a round of golf has to be going out and playing 18 with your buddies. I can't tell you the number of times I play seven holes in the evening or 10 holes or 13 or, or five. I just go out and I play what I can play. So I think the, the idea, I, mean, I kind of keep on going back to St. Andrews. So the last time I played St. Andrews, when it wasn't during a championship, I just went out to play for fun. You know, I played down the first hole. I went back to the back tee on number two, hit my tee shot, and here comes the, the ranger. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Lehman, but the, the back tees are for championships only. I go, well, I understand that, but I'm a professional. I go, oh, Mr. Lehman, I know who you are. I know you're the open champion, but, uh, but the back tees are for championships only. You know, which basically he said, you know, don't you dare go back to any more of those back tees. And so I played the forward tees. And, and so even though I did play the whole round, the whole, the whole point was that, uh, you know, we're consumed with championship golf. And we, we tend to, you know, design courses. I think, you know, a lot of times paying way too much attention to, you know, the longest hitters and the guys who are the best players. And so we've kind of gone to this idea, let's just build a fun golf course. And because we, we made this mistake at the Prairie Club and we're going to, we're going to, take a bunch of tees away, but build a golf course that is fun for everybody. And then just maybe build some tees, which you call them the championship tees, you know, use them, you only use them for championships, you know, and you put them back there, you know, where if you do get the state amateur or the, the big, the bombers out there, you, you can go ahead and use those championship tees, but, but by and large, let's just move forward and have fun with the game, you know, and whether that be 10 holes, seven holes, nine holes, 18 holes, what does it really matter if it's not a championship, but you're just playing golf, trying to enjoy yourself. And so this um, little bit outside the norm, outside of the, the box thinking, I think is important for, for golf and um, need to kind of get away from this idea that golf is 18 holes. I don't think it's necessarily true. Tom, thank you for saying that, that, that every golf course doesn't have to be 18 holes because you highlighted something that I've thought for many years. And that is you just went out to play whatever time allotted you five, six, seven holes. And so I have to ask this question to you because I have never been in your position or a position of a skilled player, but I have to ask you this. When did you have that moment when you had to think about in golf course design and architecture, how I am going to hit this shot versus how they are going to hit that shot? When did that happen for you? Oh, Gosh, that happened quite a long time ago. Um, I don't remember the exact moment, but um, there is a there is definitely a shift. Like when I first started doing design work, it was all about seeing it from the viewpoint of the 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 player who's you know an excellent player. You know, the how do I guard a golf course? You know, from the those who are the best. You know, and so and so that's the way I started. You know, back in like mid '90s or whatever. And, and at some point along the way, it shifted just the opposite. Like, look at the average guy can't play this hole. The average guy, there's nowhere for him to bounce this ball up, or there's no way for him. He can't make this carry. I mean, just you know. And so I, I kind of have kind of been thinking, you know, a lot, especially lately, of you know, the, you mentioned the, the links courses. The one thing I love about like the Open Championship is they say, here's the golf course, play it whether the, the wind is blowing two miles an hour or, or, or 50, you know, it's like, okay, the hole's 450. It's a par four. Uh, you're into the wind today. So it's, so it's a driver three wood wedge, you know, like a par five. And then that 580 yard holds a driver sand wedge. You know, we don't care what the card says, you know, play the course. Um, you know, so the idea of, of 
handicaps. You know, I think the, the you know, you would tell, read the books that McKenzie would write, you know, about just, hey, you know what, if, if you're not long enough, you play around the hazards, you know, and you just, you just manage. And that's where the handicap is. You know, it's like it takes me three shots to get there. It takes you two. You know, so what, why not just play shorter golf courses? And if a guy happens to be longer, let him benefit from that, you know, but let guys play the course. Here's the course, go play it. You know, but, it, but if you make it too long, then, then the, the average guy can't play. You know, so I, I kind of feel like there's too many tees. <laughs> I think there's too many options for players. Like, you know, why not just, you know, here's, here's a golf course, play the course, uh, use the land and uh, play around the hazards, play around the, 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 the strategic elements and, uh, you know, see how you can do. And, you know, but make it more fun. I know the, I mentioned the Prairie Club earlier that I spent so much time out there and the most fun golf course out there is when you move way forward on the tees, even yeah. for a player like myself, if you move way forward, the course becomes way more fun, yeah. you know? So this idea of length is only an issue, you know, for the, the bombers. But I would say also one last thing too. I, I find it difficult to design when you have too many tees for the 18 handicapper can hit a 280 yards, you know? So when they play in a club event and it's a scramble and they're an 18 handicapper, they're the, the C player, the D player, but they can hit a 280. And so they're playing from that white tee and everybody else is playing back from the blue tee. It becomes a problem, you know? So, so why not kind of just do a course? So here's the golf course, go play this course. You know, everybody kind of plays equally. And so it can't be too short. It can't be too long. It has to be just right. And, you know, more of that idea, more of the idea of just playing the golf course, you know, and, and not trying to accommodate everybody. Got it. Well, that's, that, that's what I saw when I played and went around the Prairie Club was, was the width that you gave people yeah. and the ability to steer it around in the, in the breeze, as the Irish would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think to myself, width usually uh, makes up for length. When I have the chance, I have the chance to steer it around, especially on some of the holes out there where you've, you've got a, a bunker here or a bunker there. I could play around them and navigate it. So thank you for the width. And yeah. I was just curious what you thought about the length versus, uh, for me, the handicap high yeah, handicap player. The, the length. So, you know, I, I do think that, um, okay, so a man goes out to play and he, he drives it 200. Okay. Um, and then his buddy who, you know, is maybe he's about the same handicapper, but he plays, he, but he drives at 260. You know, the idea of, of um, two things, either you have to have, I don't know, I, I have a hard time with that, you know, with the, with, uh, you know, of, of trying to accommodate both players from different team grounds. Yes. You know, I would rather maybe think that we would design golf courses, which allows that those guys to play from the same tee and, and be able to play the hole. Like they're not a huge force carry. And because I'm shorter than you or you're longer than me, does that really mean that I should be able to move forward from you? Agreed. You know, we're both 16 handicappers. Why should I move forward? Yep. I okay. Agree. So, so why not design in a way that allows me, uh, the shorter hitter, to still play this golf course? And, uh, and then going forward from that, you know, the one thing about the Prairie Club, one of my biggest pet peeves is, uh, okay, how do you really um, define a truly great course. Well, one of the ways, in my opinion, is, is it playable under bad conditions? You can have a beautiful golf course and it looks great on a nice day. It's, oh, what a, what a great experience. And then it gets really windy. And like you watched that, you know, the U.S. Amateur at Bandon Dunes and then it was awfully windy that day. But, um, you know, that one course, I mean, they, they, guys are winning holes with triples. 
<laughs> you, know, you, couldn't even, you couldn't even finish some of the holes. I'm not saying the course is a bad course. It's not. But some of the holes were bad holes because you couldn't play in the wind. Um, you know, so how, you know, how, how great a course is Carnoustie? Fantastic. Part of the reason why? Because no matter what the weather condition, I can play that course. And I can score if I, if I really do a good job. There's a way to get around those courses. And, and so if, if a course has got a really, you know, very brutal day, you know, can I play the course or not? And, uh, you know, so, you know, I try to make it so that, you know, you can play our courses even on a bad weather day. And, and I'm not sure where this conversation is going with that. But one thing I do know is this is I tell all the guys, you know, and I have been for a long time is you need to pay attention to where the ball's going to roll. You know, where's that ball? If, if you miss the green or you miss your line, where's that ball going to roll to? The ball has to be able to roll somewhere where you can still find it and play it. Um, my biggest pet peeve in the golf, because I play in so many pro-ams, is, is looking for golf balls all day long, you know, losing yeah. golf balls. And nobody likes – I'd rather, you know, at some point it being in a hazard where you just take a drop and keep on going than, than, than beating down the tall grass or the trees looking for golf balls. I keep on rolling – off of big slopes, you miss your line by a little, the ball rolls down a hill and then you're somewhere unplayable, you yep. know? So, so really pay attention to where, where's this ball going to roll? If you miss it, is it still going to be playable? So your penalty should be, you're, you're well off the, the perfect line. You have a much more difficult second shot because the angle's worse for whatever the reason. And, and therefore that's your penalty, you know? So you think in terms of a quarter of a shot penalty or a half a shot penalty by not hitting your line, not a one and two shot penalty. Great, great comeback because I was going to ask you of all the links courses you played, I think you said Carnoustie was one that, that you could, no matter what you were doing, the weather that was being uh, uh, presented to you, that you could still play and steer around it. So that was my next question. What links golf course did that for you? You know, most of the great ones are that way. Um, you know, I, I found that, uh, well, for sure, Carnoustie, you know, St. Andrews is probably the ultimate, you know, golfing experience Um so many lessons to be learned on that course about playing to the safe side. You know, you play to the interior of the golf course. So it's safer off the tee, but it almost gives you no chance to get it close to pins. You know, the, 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 the dominant wind coming from the West typically, and you play to the interior of the course and, and it's almost in the green sloping uh, to the East. It's like, there's almost no way to get a ball close if you're going to play safe off the tee, yeah. you know? So but, I, but, you know, there's, there's so many lessons to be learned there. But, but most of the Lynx courses, when it's um, – unless they do something crazy and try to grow the rough, if they just leave the rough the way it should be, almost all those Lynx courses give you the ability to play uh, because you can almost always find your ball. It's just a matter of, you know, how far, you know, are you missing your line. By The whole thing about Lynx golf is you have to be able to hit your distance and you have to be able to hit your line. If you can hit your distance and hit your line, especially the line, you're going to be able to play that golf course. Otherwise, you're going to be, you know, scrambling all day long. Uh, but, but you can play them all. Um, Muirfield's the same way. You know, Turnberry, beautiful golf course, fantastic course. You know, you, that's a, they're all playable. You know, they're all playable. You can hit it 100 yards offline. You can find your ball in that wispy fescue, and you can find a way to play it back into the right spot and, and have a chance. So, um, anyway, I, I just think that's – one of, the, one, of, one of the things about great golf is you can play it in bad conditions. And the Prairie Club must have been that golden opportunity for you to mm -hmm. experience and, and show people that's what you got out of Lynx golf. It is. And, and the width, because of the wind, is the issue. Now, I think, you know, thinking about, you know, maybe almost too many options, you know, that's, that's kind of where I, you know, when I play now, it's like, we have to reduce some of the options here. And, you know, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it. Tom. <laughs> well, I, I, I liked it. 
Yeah, well, just I think some of the T's, um, you know, you, you worry again that that's kind of where I came at with this whole thing about, you know, let's let's find a spot where everybody plays from and play the course from a shorter position yeah. and uh, and then benefit the longer hitter. And if you want to have a championship, have a championship tee back there somewhere. But, you know, too many T's, too many which no, people never used too much accommodating the wind. And so going back to you know the golf over there in Ireland and Scotland, everything is, is like, they, they don't really accommodate the wind. Here's the course, play the course yeah. you know, today. This is, this par three is a par five. <laughs> and this <laughs> par right. five is a par three, That's you know, right. that kind of thing. So you know, the, the, the wind dictate your score, but, but you're going to play the golf course as it lies. So how could you, how, or how did you transition from the Prairie club to some of the other golf courses you did in Arizona and the one you're going to go to Minnesota, even mm-hmm. though you can't give it that big width that you'd like, how yeah. will you change up that design to allow that to have that same flavor? Oh, you know what? Um, you know, I'm thinking about Minnesota. Minnesota's um, well. Look at the, the elements in Minnesota are different. You know, the 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 big tall pine trees and the lakes and little wetland areas. Um, you know, so, so the the idea of, of, I'm just thinking about, you know, where we're giving space. So giving, you know, giving space where space needs to ha- to happen and then using the tall trees and the wetlands in places where they can be more strategic, you know, so the, the um, too many shots, you know, just you, you miss by a little and you're in some unplayable area. So let's, re- let's, let's eliminate that. Let's yeah. eliminate those things. You know, does that mean, filling a little bit of a wetlands. Does that mean removing trees? Does it mean taking out bunkers? You know, let's give a little bit of room, you know, where you need to have the room, you know, and then uh, making the green complex is really interesting so that uh, the approaches, you know, give you some real food for thought. Right. You know, right. Having great greens, you know, it's like we did a golf course at North Oaks in St. Paul, which was a Stanley Thompson design course. And, I mean, the greens were just fantastic. And you can see over the years how the different committees had changed the course to kind of make it, you know, maybe fit their image, you know, but it was getting more and more away of the way the course was designed with the greens to be yes. approached from one angle or another by Stanley Thompson. And yeah. so the, the renovation was simply to go back and here's how the course was designed to be played. You know, here's the angle it was designed to be approached from. And so you can kind of take those things with a, you know, in Minnesota where like, here's, here's the hazards, here's the elements, you know, this, this is demanding to be approached from this angle. So let's make sure that we reward that person who can get it to that spot to re- approach from that angle. And let's penalize by a quarter of a shot or a half a shot, those who get off that optimal line, you know, let's require a, a better shot to be hit. Let's make sure that we can still find it, you know, so these areas where, you know, you have a five iron from 190, you know, for me, or maybe it's a, a three wood for the, anybody else. You know, do you really want to demand perfection? You know, is perfection required here? Well, I'm not sure from 190 that perfection is the, is the perfect thing. You know, let's, let's give a little bit of mercy and grace here for a miss. I like it. <laughs> you, know, I like it. The, you know, but if it's a, 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 a 70 yard lob wedge, now let's go ahead and demand a little more perfection. Yeah. You know, anybody should be able to kind of get better, you know, from that distance. Yeah, Derek likes those short lobs, so I'm sure he's going to drill you on that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Tom, it's interesting to listen to you speak about Lynx golf and and hitting your line, but also giving uh, room for forgiveness and and how that impacts your thinking of of how you would approach design and architecture. And yet, 
I, I wanted I have to touch on this. You as a professional in your playing days, and you you went on one of the great U.S. Open runs in history in the mid to late '90s. I mean, you finished at Shinnecock. You had a, a tied for third. Oakland Hills in '96. You were t- uh, T2 Congressional. You finished third and Olympic uh, Lake Course. You uh, finished tied for fifth. And those are all very, very demanding golf courses in different ways. But, but you know, there, we associate that with narrow fairways having to be mm-hmm. perfect execution. Uh, do you like that style of golf? I mean, it's, I, I'm heartened to hear you talk about your design, putting on your design hat, and thinking the way you you do and the way you've explained it. That's I think the the direction that golf should should be going and, and embracing that multiplicity and, and getting everybody around. But it was very different from the types of golf courses that you often excelled at. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the strengths of my game um, really lent itself to a U.S. Open type environment. You know, I, I hit the ball pretty long. Uh, wasn't the longest, but I was, you know, plenty long, and I and I hit it real straight off the tee. Um, hit one shot almost exclusively a right to left shot, which was just a natural shot for me. And so, you know, for those who who you know can really strike the ball. Um, you know, playing a golf course, which demands um, the ability to hit your line is, is a big advantage, you know? So those, I kind of look at it that those U S open courses, the way they are set up are way more like a links course uh, in, in a, in the open championship than they are today. I mean, we're, we're giving more room off the tee now at a U.S. open and be able to ability to recover, you know, from the rough, um, you know, and so it's kind of gotten away from the things that I felt were so demanding about a U.S. open. You had to hit the fairway. When you stood on the tee, you were nervous. When you watched it on television, you were nervous for the guy hitting because you knew if he missed that fairway, you couldn't get to the green. And he got to a point in the round where, well, he had to hit the fairway or else, you know, there was a lot of stress on that tee shot. Just like when you stand on a tee at, uh, at Muirfield in Scotland, you know, and there's a left to right wind blowing and you got all the bunkers down the right side and the, and the fairway slopes left to right, just like a couple of those holes do out there. I mean, it's a really demanding tee shot. You better hit your line. And, and if you don't hit your line, you're going to find yourself in those pot bunkers. And it's a, a half a shot to a shot penalty. Uh, just like hitting in the rough at a US Open was a half a shot to a shot penalty. Um, you know, so, so to me, that's a, they're very much the same. You know, so when people talk about the US Open team being too demanding with the rough, I always disagree because it was much like simply this, you got to hit your line. You know, and, and the more you can get away from hitting your line and still survive, um, you know, the less pressure on that tee shot. And I, I really think testing people with a driver in their hands is a big deal uh, in championship golf. Now, is that the way it should be with the everyday golfer? Um, no, but, but part of the, the beauty and the brilliance and the genius of those old traditional great golf courses is you could chop all the rough down and it's still, you know, demanding because of uh, the way that they use the, the slopes and the way they used um, – all of the natural features of, of the property, you know, so that, you know, it's, it's all about getting the right angle of approach to the, to, to those pins on those greens. Um, can you get there? And if you don't, there is a penalty to it. It's really hard to get a close um, even for the best players, if you're out of position. Um, and so the, the, the whole thing about getting the ball in position or, or being out of position, there should be a penalty for that, you know, and the penalty in my book, again, shouldn't be one or two shots. It should be a quarter of a shot or a half a shot. Um, you know, let's not be too penal. But with that said, I really do like like Pete Dye's designs. I think Pete Dye was a, was a strategic genius. Uh, I think he demanded that you you play uh, and challenge hazards in order to get that perfect line to pins. And if you missed 
on the wide side or, you know, on the, you're checking out and bail. Well, your angle was so difficult. It was going to be, it was, I'm happy to make a par. Uh, if I get it over there next to that water hazard where I've got that perfect line to a pin and I can attack that pin, well, now I can play offense. And so Pete demanded off the tee that you challenge hazards. And uh, his hazards happened to be the kind of thing, though, that, you know, you had to take drops and, you know, it was, it was water or, or something. And, and, you know, I'm not sure that's all good, but, the, but that philosophy, though, where I can, where I can you know, have to challenge things off the tee in order to get that best possible chance to make a birdie is, I think, brilliant. That's, that's the essence of the great creative uh, geniuses who designed golf courses through the years. You have to challenge something. There has to be a risk somewhere. And if you can take on that challenge and win, you're rewarded with a, with a way better chance to make a, a, a better score in the hole. You know, it, so that's, I think that's really good golf. That's a thinking man's game. It's a, it takes a skill to, to accomplish it. Uh, but, but why not demand that from golfers? You know, in the, in the 1980s and 90s, the gap between great players and good or av- even average players was substantial in the skill level, but but it was they could see each other. You know, a, a top tour player might drive the ball 270 yards, 280 yards, and there are a lot of even to net, today there are a lot of ten handicappers that can hit the ball that far or 240, 250. So there there was a, a relativity to the professional game and the, and the high amateur game to ordinary game. It's so yeah. different now. It almost like yeah. you know if you're in the design business, you have to think in diametrically opposed different ways to accommodate both. Are you yeah. able to, my question is, you just mentioned, uh, you know, Pete Dye. Is that a way you approach design is to try to find a way for that when you do put in that tournament tee to create those pro lines, those lines you have to hit to get the best angle while still, you know, having a tee that might be 80 yards forward, still have enough, you know, playability and, and, and fun factor that it's going to to be both can you do both how difficult is it to achieve well, I mean, both ends you know what i guess i'm way less concerned about the pro and the, and the really good amateur today than i used to be you know um which is why we've i've we've kind of gone that's why we've kind of gone from the idea of you know building like a forward tee a middle tee and a back tee let's say just make it really simple mm-hmm. to let's just kind of build those those tees where most people play from and then let's, after that, let's go think about the championship tee, you know, the tee for use for championships only kind of back to that St. Andrew's story. We're going to use these tees for championships only. Okay. So you don't need to be big. They don't need to be, you know, front and center, but there you have them somewhere where you have a big event. And so you want to have a, so this, say you want to have a McKenzie tour event, you know, on your course, you know, these young pros and they're all hitting it. So, Championship, you know, tees for championships only where you, so you, I think you can go place those, you know, in really great spots, uh, but, but don't design the hole for those. I mean, how do you design a hole for Dustin Johnson and still design for everybody else? It's Agreed. impossible. Thank you. Agreed. It's impossible. <laughs> you can't do it. You know, so let's, let's design for the average player, for the, the guy who wants to enjoy that course day in and day out. And then let's go find a place for Dustin Johnson to tee off from, which will challenge him if you can. Um, you know, so that's kind of a little bit of, I think, a little shift with the way most people think, you know, it's almost all because of those guys hit the ball so much further today. How do you, how do you design a course for Bryson DeChambeau? You know, the sixth hole at Bay Hill was, you know, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be a three shot hole or something around that lake. And yeah. now they're driving it right in front of the green. I mean, that's, um, it's a whole different animal. So, so, you know, if you, if you try to design a course 
for him and still make it playable for everybody else, you're going to fail. You know, so doesn't design it for everybody else and then figure out back there somewhere where you can put a tee to, to challenge those guys. And I, I had a, uh, a quick discussion, Derek, with, with Tom about White Bear Yacht Club. <laughs> I said, yeah. White Bear Yacht Club will stifle those long hitters if they're in the wrong spot. And Tom grew up in playing all the golf courses in the, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And he can tell you White Bear Yacht Club will do that just because of the topography. Absolutely. There's, I mean, that's, um, that's very linksy in feel. I mean, you have blind par threes. I mean, it's okay. So we're not playing Prestwick, but we're, you know, we got a blind par three. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, the shapes. I mean, this, I think that's, to me, that's the genius of guys like you, Jim. And uh, you know, the guys who really know what they're doing is, is how to use those natural shapes and how to not fight the grays, how to, how to use them all in a, such a way to route the course, the, 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 the older, you know, the classic architects were just routing geniuses the way they used the topography. And, uh, I remember playing one time, we were playing at Westchester Country Club, which happens to be one of my favorite golf courses on the tour up until they stopped using it. Just, you know, I loved Westchester. I just thought it was so, so much fun to play and it was a challenge. And I was playing with VJ Singh and, and we were talking about how great the course was. And he made a comment, uh, you know, you would think with all of today's technology that we could build courses like this today. And I said, well, maybe it's because of the technology that we can't, you know, maybe, maybe people are not so concerned about finding that perfect piece of land, or maybe they can't have that perfect piece of land, but they did this thing with a horse, you know, dragging a little thing behind it, you know, and they don't, they didn't create these manufactured shapes. They were, you know, this is what you got, you know? And uh, so maybe today in design, we feel like we can create too much, you know, it's easier just to build it and we'll, we'll, we'll blow it up and, and build something really cool and without using the natural shapes. And, uh, you know, and so that's, uh, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, Jim, you probably know way more than I do, but you know, the idea of building all the bunkers and the features with the excavator works so much better than with the dozer, the way do way better, way yeah. better, way better because I'm emulating that horse and pan. That's yeah. what I'm doing. I'm taking the amount of dirt that that horse could pull with that pan. And that's what an excavator bucket does. A D8 yeah. doesn't do that, but Tom, don't tell anybody that the D8 can't do that. Yeah, well, people are starting to learn and catch on, but it's it's truly <laughs> you, know, the, the, you don't you can't get those beautiful, intimate, natural-looking shapes with a with a with a dozer blade. Nope, you can't. It's ten feet wide, and I don't care what you do. Ten feet is ten feet. Yeah, but an excavator bucket is just like a horse in a pan. Boom, yeah. plop it, done. That's why you like Westchester. I know the golf course. I worked by it, close, uh, consulted close to it. I know the golf course. I appreciate you saying that. Very good golf course. Yeah. You talked about natural shapes and grades and how designers of yesteryear were so good at utilizing those. When you first visited the, the Prairie Club site, with that in mind, your, your, mind must, your head must have been spinning with possibilities and seeing <laughs> like, how can we use all of this natural topography. We don't have to do anything to it. We can, make, we can incorporate any kind of, of shot on any kind of hole if we just find the right combination of holes and the right land. How, how was, yeah. What was your approach to, to routing that course and, and achieving exactly that? Well, we walked, we walked the land. The ranch itself was uh, like 3,500 acres or something close to that, 4,000 acres. And I, I went out there for probably three or four days a month for 13 months and just walked, 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 just walked the thing back and forth, just, you know, for over a year. 
you know, in, in plotting holes and looking at connections and, and uh, ended up, you know, like I say, there's two, there's so many possibilities, you know, you end up, you know, with what do you think are the 18 best holes in sequence? And so that's what we did. We just, uh, we, we kind of ended up finding, you know, what we thought was the, the best use of the land. And it was, you know, some holes are through the valleys, some holes are on the along the tops, you know, some holes are from high to low, some from to low to high. I mean, just try to get a variety of shots using these natural blowouts that there you find in the, out there in the sand hills. And, um, and there was so many holes that were just sitting there. So interesting comment about that is uh, there was two courses that were built. One was the Pines course and, and they had a contractor uh, hired to do that work. And then the Dunes course, we basically hired Kyle Franz and a few other guys to, to do the shaping, um, build the features. And, and one of the comments early was, uh, well, um, you haven't staked the golf course. I go, well, what do, what do you mean? We haven't staked you. Well, you, you know, you need, we need to stake the course. They know how to grade the fairways. And, and I said, well, why should we stake the golf course? We're not going to do any grading. <laughs> what do you mean? He goes, well, no, we, we, because we spent all this time, I mean, the greens are already sitting there. The fairways are already there. There's, there's almost no grading necessary. So why would we want to spend the money to stake a golf course so that we don't do anything? I mean, it's like if you just walked out there right now and took this prairie grass off and planted turf, which is what we're going to do, you have your golf course. And, and we're just going to kind of, you know, finish off the areas where the greens are. And we're going to, you know, get that excavator and scoop out the bunkers. But otherwise, this golf course is, is there. It's already there. There's, there's no shaping or no masquerading necessary. Um, and that's what I think was the important part about the dunes course is that it's a very natural looking golf course because it was just set in the area. I mean, there, there virtually was no dirt moved. And Derek, uh, he talks about Kyle France. I think uh, Jack Dredler was there. Yeah. Uh, George Waters was George there. Waters. Yeah. Uh, and these are all guys that I like you, you fall in love with, right, Tom, you fall in yeah. love with them because of the passion they give you on yeah, site. I know each of they, those guys. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, you don't want to go home because they don't want to go home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. No, There's idea. not much to go home to when you're working up there, though. <laughs> yeah, well, Kyle actually had a girlfriend. There was a lot to go home to that for those oh. couple of years he was up there. But um, anyway, the uh, yeah, he met a girl at the at the Merritt Reservoir working in the in the renting boats and everything. So he, he, I think he enjoyed his time in, in Valentine, Nebraska. Good for him. Good for him. But you, <laughs> but you understand their infectious uh, uh, passion yeah. for what they do. And it really energizes you what you do. Well, I think when you get, when you get everybody, you know, pulling in the same direction, um, the vision that I had for the course, uh, they really bought into that vision. Uh, you know, Chris Brands and I worked hard at, you know, what do we really want? We want with, we want the ability to have, with them, you know, but we want strategy. So if you're, you know, much like a St. Andrews type field where yeah. you have a lot of room to drive it off the tee, but if you want to get it close to that pin, you've got to challenge this or that. Uh, that's really the idea. And, and Kyle and George and um, I'm missing a couple of guys, but they, they, uh, Jack, they all totally bought into that and agree with it. And, and then watching them go to work to kind of uh, implement that, you know, Hey, we're, we need, if you, if you want to get that perfect position here, you've got to challenge this, um, little bitty blowout that's already started. So why don't you go ahead and just accentuate that and yep. make something really cool and, and watching them kind of go to town and, and turn, you know, what was relatively nothing into something was, was really fun for me to watch. But Tom, it was still something. And, and you just, you found that routing that, that was perfect for the land. Uh, but as you know, Tom, you could have went South, North, East, West, and people would say, well, why did you go here? Well, mm -hmm the complications that go into a routing on a piece of land like that are 
are multi, multi, but you eventually have to start building it and you got to finish it or you just keep going forever. Yeah. Well, I think there's, well, you, you've, you've spent so much time on so many great sites, but I think you end up finding there's two or three places that you say we absolutely have to get here. That's correct. I mean, to not use these areas right here would be a, such a misuse of this land. We, ha- we have to find a way to use these, these spots. And, and maybe there's two of them. Maybe there's five. Maybe there's seven. Who knows how many. But, 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 but at some point, we, ha- we have to get right here. Yeah. And we had like one of those things on one of our holes. There was two huge natural blowouts. I mean, these massive, deep, cavernous blowouts. Uh, and we wanted to get out there and use those as natural features. And we always thought we would come at it from one, one direction. And we, we simply couldn't get out there to get that angle. And in the course of walking one day, I, I looked and I could see over the top of this dune. I go, aren't those those blowouts that we're, we want to get to? Yeah, they are. But we are coming from a whole different direction. I go, let's just kind of walk over there and see what we have going from this direction, you know, and, and it saved us really two holes. You have to get out to get to where we want to come from, to, to come from it. And it was realized this coming from this angle is better from that angle yeah. um, and using it in a little different way. And so, you know, but, but it was those spots that you find that you have to use, you know, and so the, I think the real secret is, you know, how do you use those? How do you get to those spots without sacrificing, you know, the holes getting there? Or have 10 clubhouses. What's that? Or have 10 clubhouses. Yeah, exactly right. So, so <laughs> I think you see it. I think you see it all the time in you know, golf courses where, you know, you spend the first 13 or 14 or 15 holes just going, wow, this is amazing. And then the last <laughs> one just kind of let you down. It's like, it's like, well, we got to a point, but now we got to get back. Yeah. And we, and we're, uh, we're willing to sacrifice the holes getting back because these first bunch were so good. And, but, but there's such a big difference you know, in my opinion, when you, when you do that and you always kind of end up leaving the golfers going, Oh, that was great. But those last few holes are kind of weak. And I think to myself, you must've saw hole number eight uh, in the beginning. Yeah. And thought, How do I get to this hole right here? Yeah, correct. It's pretty unique. Oh, when I saw that hole, Derek, I thought, all right, I hope I get 20 more of these. <laughs> yeah, you like that, that much. <laughs> well, you know what? I think if you're a true lover of golf and, and mm-hmm. golf course design and, and uh, you, you realize, you know, how you don't get that opportunity very often where you have no. this natural little cut through, you know, the wind just whistles through that. And, and that's kind of one of those reasons why I mentioned that the tees moving forward are so much better. It's hard to get to that perfect spot, you know, consistently when you go too far back. Got it. You know, so moving way forward, now I can get there maybe some days with a two iron, some days with a three wood, some days with a driver, you know, but I can get there all the time, you know, and so you want everybody to experience that. You want everybody to be able to experience getting to that spot, you know, and half the fun of that hole, if not more, is getting that tee shot to that magical spot where you can see right through to that little bowl of green back there. Unbelievable. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really fun hole and, you know, the, and, you know, but that's one of those holes, though, we were talking earlier where the, the, the higher handicappers don't like it. It's a tough hole, you know, and so our goal now is to figure out, well, OK, well, there's a pretty I think there's a way to fix that. I think there's a way for the average person to play this hole when they don't hit it far enough by going up and over. If we added fairway up on the top left, you know, where they can just pop it on top and let it run down. Right now, it's all high grass, you know, so let's let's find an avenue for those players to be able to to play the hole. And maybe they can't get there in two, but they can get close. You know, but 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 why give up on something so natural and so unique? You know, I agree. That, that hole is a very unique hole. One of my 
top 20 unique holes of all time. And mm. you're right. Maybe some people don't get to experience the slot because they didn't get there. But for me, uh, the, 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 implement, uh, the implementation of the hole and the natural feature, it was off the charts. Off, <laughs> off the charts. Yeah. Tom, last year uh, for Golf Digest, Ron Witten and I selected the 18 greatest holes built since 2000. And one of the nominees for the, our second hole was at the uh, Prairie Club. And speaking of naturalness, and I, I don't, first of all, he, looking at that hole and hearing you talk about Lynx golf and, and St. Andrews and, you know, having to play the more dangerous line, that fence line is one of the most unique hazards. A straight line hazard in American golf isn't that common. I'm imagining that was a natural boundary that you went right up. And that's why that, that may be the, why that fence is there. But that remind that's a very linksy hole and it's, it's, fascinating and fantastic in a way that is natural in a different way. You, you talked about the eighth hole where you have that blowout in the gap and yeah. you know, you got to get over that to that you know, big open green where the second hole is you have, that's a pick your line hole. That's a, you know, if the green, if the pins in one place, you want to hug that fence line. And if it's in the other place, you might want to play to the fat side. It's a very dynamic hole. Yeah. Yeah. No bunkers in the fairway. Right. And uh, so if you remember, um, if you ever played St. George's uh, in England, uh, where we hold the open championship, there's a par five about number 14, which has that straight line hazard on the right side. Yep. You know, so the T, the, the actual fence line starts one foot off the edge of the T uh, at St. George's and it, it extends the all entire way down to the green. All right. So you can play out left, you know, but there's high rough there. And, you know, I mean, it becomes a real disaster when you, when you bail out left, you know, so you have to, you have to just man up and hit the fairway. Now the Prairie club has more room, to the left, you know, that's accommodating, you know, more of the average player, but it is also, like you say that, you know, that when that pin is on the back left or the left side of the green, you get it down the left side and you get into the hollow, especially it's, it's impossible to get it close. doesn't mean you can't get on the green, you know, but you're going to give yourself a long putt and you're going to, you know, probably two putt, maybe three putt, depending on who you are. So it's, it's a slight penalty to, to, to play away from the fence line. But if you hug the fence line to those left side pins, it's a pretty simple shot, you know? So yeah, that straight line, you know, when we saw that hole, and that's one of those places at the Prairie Club that we decided early, like, we have to play this hole. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. We have to play this hole. I don't care what we do. We have to be able to play that hole um, because it's that unique. Um, and you're right. The straight line fence, to me, is uh, that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so normal. It's so plain. It's so unusual. Um, and, and then there's actually some tees down lower to the right, which you kind of cut over the corner of the fence, which are the, the best tees, I think. Right. And when I go play there, those are the ones that I play from down below to the right, where you cut over the corner of the fence and, and you kind of have to pick how much you want to chew off to get down that right side. And, you know, it's a, it's a really unique shot. And I, if I could say, uh, Tom, when I walked that site years ago, years ago with, with the doctor, I saw the canyon as providing that same kind of feature. Yeah, you know, the canyon is it's a long way down. Hug it close to the canyon to get your best angle. Play away from the canyon to get your, your uh, not the, the sweet spot for that same fence line you did on two. I thought for the same thing on the canyon. It could have yeah. provided that drama once or twice in the round. Yeah, yeah that canyon is pretty spectacular. Um, Unbelievable. For sure. It's uh, so unique in the sand hills to have something like that. Those kinds of two different um elements of, uh, you know, two kind of, you know, areas to play in the dunes course, wide open, exposed, no trees. And then you have along that canyon with the pines and the deep, deep Canyon. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, the, 
the, the well, you know, Gil is doing a course, yes. which is using that canyon really beautifully. It's a, yes. he's got a lot of shots that uh, are doing exactly what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, it should be a spectacular place to play. And, and uh, uh, you know, when, anytime you can kind of get the uniqueness of different, um, you know, like when you go play Cypress Point, as an example, you know, you start out kind of exposed and then you kind of move into the trees for a while. Then you come out into the dunes for a while. Then you're going to go back into the trees and then you come out and you make that turn and you're back to the dunes and then you're along the ocean cliff. I mean, it's like, there's this, you know, you know, different elements and different uh, atmospheres, you know, you're, you're in a whole different world. There's like three or four different worlds out there that you get to experience. And I think that's kind of the beauty of golf, you know, that uh, you get to experience that kind of variety all within one round. And you get to go down to the bottom of the canyon and fish at the end of the day. Yeah, just look out for the mountain lion. Look for that mountain lion. <laughs> I agree totally. The, the, the idea that you could intermingle unbelievable different teachers, topography in, in Valentine, Nebraska, if Tom and I were both dropped in there and they had to guess uh, where we were at, I would have never guessed western Nebraska. Never. Yeah, never, never in a million years. Never. Tom, we'll wrap this up in a minute, but I'm curious, you mentioned you playing Westchester with VJ Singh and, and commenting on it. Who else on in your uh, PGA Tour days or now your championship days uh, do you have conversations about golf courses and architecture with? Are there, are there people out there that are really into it to the level that you are? I think almost everybody's a, a, an architect. Everybody's of a course. designer. They all have opinions, you know. And uh, They're all editors. It's always funny to me, though. It's really interesting to me that there's a – there's something, um, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. Maybe Jim, he's way more, uh, and maybe you can too, Derek, but you're probably way more able to express in words, but you know, some guys just see it, you know, some guys just get it and other guys are just clueless. I mean, it's like, you can see a great player who, you know, you, I think we ought to do this, this, and this, and you kind of look at him and go like, well, that's just, there's, that's just not going to work at all. I mean, that's just impossible. You know, why would you, why would you do that? You know? And, and they started explaining why they would do it. And then, it just doesn't work, right? It just doesn't make sense. Whereas other guys, I mean, they're, they're they look at things and you know, and like you know what? I think if you just raise the right side of the fairway about two feet, that would be so much better. And you start looking at you know, you're right. That little bit of something different would change everything with this hole, you know. And uh, and, and to me, those are the guys that I really enjoy uh, talking to. Is 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 the guys who who look at it, you know, from that with that ability to kind of see that. Um, a lot of times it doesn't take a whole lot to fix something. And, uh, but then they can see like in a natural environment, just, you know, the, the, the shape and the slope and, and how things could fit so perfectly on there. And uh, I don't know, just, uh, I think there's something about golf course designers where it's some kind of innate thing of balance and harmony uh, that they understand it, they feel it, they see it and, and, uh, and others don't. Do you think it's grounded in experience I mean, I know you said it's innate, but also coupled with that. Like I think of Ben Crenshaw, who has that without a doubt and always has, yeah. but also he it's combined with his incredible uh, wealth of knowledge about history of golf courses and, and having seen everything in the world. And I'm wondering if, if the your contemporaries that, that you came up playing with, you know, you play tour courses, but they're not always, frankly, the most interesting architecturally, or they don't have the most history. They don't uh, express the greatest, highest elements of architectural design. So perhaps yeah. it's not being exposed in a way that the, the modern tour player might not be exposed to great architecture unless they go out of their way to see it. 
Well, I think the question why, uh, why do I like this so much is the most important question you can ask yourself or why do I not like this? You know, so what is it about this that I hate? What is it about this that I love? And so when I play golf courses, you know, in competition, especially, but you know, whenever I go play, that's what I ask myself is like, okay, I love this hole. Why do I like it so much? You know, what are the things about it that I like? What's, what is it that kind of draws me in or man, I hate this hole. You know, I can't stand this hole. You know, why, why do I hate it so much? And so I think like, I'll give you an example. Okay. I mean, uh, I'm not going to name the course, but there's a, a, there's a course we played, you know, in Scotland, a Lynx course. And uh, there was um, this one guy was just saying, Oh, that is the greatest par three. I love that par three. And, you know, just such a cool hole. And, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is the worst par three I think I've ever played in my life. It is so bad. And, um, and so I'm like, why do you like it so much? And he was like, well, here's why I like it. And I go, well, let me, just, let me just ask you a couple of questions. And the questions were basically related to why I hated it. <laughs> okay. If you miss the green long, where's your ball going to go? Oh, it's going to go into the creek, right? If you miss, your, if you miss the green left, where's it going to go? Oh, it's going to roll down into the, that tall, bushy, gorsy, fescue stuff over there. Okay. If I miss it to the right, where's it going to go? You know, okay. Now the green itself, you know, tell me about the green. Well, I love the fact that it's so high on the right and, and it's low on the left. You can kind of feed the ball down in there. I go, okay. Yeah. But every, let me ask you one question. Like, is there anywhere to miss this shot? Not really. Is it ever windy here all the time? I go, so, so what is it so much that you love about this? So you can't miss, you can't miss the shot. There is virtually no place for the ball to go. If you miss it, unless you hit it perfectly. Okay, so he loved the way it looked. It was framed by bunkers, the backdrop, I mean, all the things that looked beautiful. Okay, so it did. It looked really nice. It looked really great. But you know what? It was so unplayable. It was so unplayable. And I think maybe that's where I end up at at the end of the day is, 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 is the holes that I love so much. They look beautiful. They paint a beautiful picture. They draw me in. I want to spend my whole life looking there on that spot, hitting that shot. It's so compelling, but it's playable. It's, it's under the day. It's just, it's really a playable hole versus unplayable. And, and I just think there's too much, too much of a penal nature in golf course design where you de- you're, they, it demands too much from you. You're unable to give it, it becomes unplayable and, and it's no fun. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> well, we see that in your design so far. We're looking forward to seeing what's, what's next with, with you and, and Chris and we'll keep our eyes on the project in Minnesota. Yeah. Well, I'm a firm believer in quarter shot penalties and half shot penalties. What can we use that's already there that provides a quarter or a half shot of a penalty? Um, You know, if you look at statistics on the PGA tour, you know, because that's where all the stats are, you realize what what a quarter of a shot around or a half a shot around can mean to those guys. You know, so if every penalty out there were simply a fraction um, of, of a shot, okay, a tenth of a shot, two tenths of a shot, you know, two, three tenths of a shot, you know, 0.05% of a shot. I mean, if, if every mishit shot provided some more difficult by just a very marginal amount, um, you end up having a, a golf course where you understand that you have to play it. You know, you have to do this, 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 and this to, to score. Well, if you don't, you're going to, you're going to fight and you're going to end up, you know, shooting, you know, for me, maybe I shoot 72 instead of 68. You know, all those little mistakes add up and not one thing has, has punished you where you're out of the, out of the round. You know, I like that. Yeah. Incrementalism or 
death by a thousand cuts. Another. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got it. You, that's it right there. Yeah. You got it. It chips away at you. Tom, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for spending some time with Jim and I. Yeah, I thank you. Thank, thank you, guys. Tom. Appreciate it. It's good being with you. I appreciate it. All right, Jim. Well, there was Tom Lehman. Um, what a kind of, I, I'll be honest, I don't know what I was expecting to, to talk to him. You know, we think of Tom Lehman as a professional player, a major championship winner. He's a high profile public guy. Uh, he's in the design business with Chris Brands, but uh, frankly, a lot of people probably who are listening haven't played their, the golf course. The Prairie Club's a remarkable place, but it's kind of hard to get to. Um, everybody should should make the effort to get there at least once. It's it's outstanding. Uh, but you know, for a player slash architect, there's not a lot of volume of work out there. So I'm not sure what I was expecting, but it almost sounded like he had listened to our intro. He was kidding on these same themes that you and I were talking about right before we brought him on. It was really remarkable. And, and I, I wish we could have gone on for another 30 or 40 minutes because I think that, that Tom had a lot more to say. It's an incredible amount of, of interesting ideas and really has a, a nice feel for where I think the highest level of architecture is right now and has been for the last, last 10, 15, 20 years. I agree with you, Derek. I was totally impressed, but I had a, I had an inkling that he was going to have this, what I call passion, mm-hmm. this energy, what it takes to, to, to be out in the field and doing that kind of work. Uh, several people who have, who I have worked with, who have worked for me, uh, George Waters, uh, Kyle Franz, uh, Will Smith, um, Jack Jedla, who does some work for the Coor and Crenshaw people, they were all on site, and 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 a couple of them had told me that uh, Tom Lehman has some energy, has some passion, and it really showed in the interview today. And that's what it takes, Derek. It takes somebody who wants to spend the time on site to to uh, let these uh, holes evolve, uh, seek out the ones that are most important to you. And it really showed in that interview that he for the. To the next job he goes to, he'll have that same passion. And what he did at the Prairie Club, he wants to go back. Uh, sounds like he could live there forever uh, and continue to uh, uh, tinker with it like Pete Dye did in a lot of his golf courses. Mm-hmm. Passion, energy, I loved it. I did not expect that from a tour player. I thought he would be way more analytical. He is analytical, but you can tell the passion came through. Yeah. One of the things I took away from that was interesting just to kind of get – in his mind as a player, but also as an architect. And this is really fundamental, I think, to great design is he, he, he talked about playing the the open road courses and links courses. And he said, if you can hit your line, you can play those golf courses. And if you yeah. can control your distance, even better. But it's really about hitting the line, especially at the at the old course, yeah. at the courses that he had great success at. You know, obviously he won at Lytham and St. Anne's. And he talked about Pete Dye also being a master of he, yeah. creating that line of, of play, he'll disguise it and make it look like it's not there. But if you can decipher what that line is, put the ball on that aggressive line, it's going to unlock the rest of the hole. And so he, you know, t- he's in a really special category where he can understand that he can execute it. He talked about, uh, <laughs> he can execute. He talked about, we talked about his great run of uh, success in the U S open. He never quite got to that number one uh, medalist position, but he uh, went for a series of years there where he was always in contention. He had uh, 54 hole leads. He was right in the thick of it. And those golf courses were sort of like very demanding courses, tree line golf courses, high rough. And he was just able to hit those lines and pick it. Yeah. And then you get to the uh, place like the Prairie club and there's, he, he's 
giving <laughs> miles of, of fairway and, and width and, you know, 60, 70 yard fairways in some cases. So, um, yeah. there's a lot of range in there, but even within that, he, under, he knows about hitting those lines. We talked about the second hole, uh, the eighth hole, yeah. really, really interesting thoughts from Tom. Agree. And what I thought was, and I wanted to interject, but I didn't want to interrupt him. He was going so well. He was talking about playing of, of, offensively and, 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 and playing defensively when he plays the game. As you said, he executes those shots. And that brought me back to uh, my favorite, one of my favorite books, uh, Weather Than Simpson, the, my favorite chapter, Attack and Defense. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read this to you. Right, if you don't right. Mind. The architectural side of golf. Yes, agreed. And I quote, Golf can claim, without exception, to be the most flexible game in the world. There are no lines or circles to denote areas of play. Nothing, in fact, but a starting point and a final goal. The widest liberty of action is allowed between these points with facilities for every kind of maneuver. That's exactly what he talked about. Pick your line, execute that line, as you know I do all the time, Derek. Absolutely, like a surgeon. (laughs) <laughs> I just, I picked that line. And once I've picked that line, I will be rewarded for attacking that. And what golf course architect, what golf course designer, what golf course builder doesn't think about how will somebody hit the shot and how will I defend that shot? And when he was talking about that, I was like, this guy is spot on. He's applied his golf game, his professional golf career to architecture. I hope that he has more chances to let us see how he presents that attack and defense as Weathered and Simpson talk about in his book. What did you think of his opinion? Maybe I guess is, is one way to put it of uh, that. There being, there are too many T's in architecture now on most golf courses and, and his, his idea to really narrow it down to maybe three sets of T's. Uh, we see that more frequently uh, the opposite direction. You know, you go to, there are some golf courses that have been built in last 20 or 30 years that, that have seven sets of tees or eight or, um, and they're just scattered all over the place. And a lot of, I've, I've spoken to a lot of designers who really use that as part of their design approach by using tees to get, uh, the player to certain yardage markers in the fairway so that, you know, they, they want a, a player to be hitting a certain type of club into a green, into a par four or a par five. And you do that by building tees and working backwards. The, the lady, typically drives it this far and you want her to be, have the same club as the, uh, the, the male member who, who drives at 220 yards. So they're both kind of hitting the same type of shots and the same clubs into greens. Um, that's a very modern way of thinking. I've always kind of wondered, I, I, you know, that this is probably doesn't work in today's day and age and it's maybe out outmoded, but I, I always like the, the one or two T system, you know, just like in the yes. olden days, uh, in yes. 1922, a golf course probably had two, two sets of tees, maybe three, maybe one, and that you play it and you just play the hole as best you can. So uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I don't like seven and eight and nine sets of tees. I I really don't. Uh, I believe that a golf course uh, should have at least three potential teeing grounds, a general overall member's tee or daily fee tee, a tee for the expert player, the player that uh, hits it far beyond what I can hit and what most average golfers in America could hit. And then a forward tee for someone who doesn't have the sing- swing speed that, uh, as you know, Bryson DeChambeau has. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hits, you know, 
he's breaking the sonic boom when that club goes through the air. We all don't have that. So I think three sets of tees would cover that. One of the things that I tried to do was I tried to uh, incorporate what was called a unity, a one tee system, so that there wasn't blocks of tees. And I think I did it very successfully at Old McDonald. Started it at Sabonic. I uh, started at Pacific Dunes and then carried it on to Sabonic, where there was no tees. And you just kind of put your peg in the ground and, the, and away you went. And that offered the chance for you to put the tee wherever you wanted to, wherever you felt comfortable, Derek. And that you weren't isolated on these blocks, these one or two or three or four or five or six or seven tees. You weren't isolated, but that you could tee it up wherever you felt comfortable. And that's where I started the Unity system. But I had only copied it from other golf courses from way back. But I liked his idea that there should be less tees because I think a lot of people play too far back, Derek, and they play uh, and, and they should be playing more forward. I watch them play all the time and I watch them uh, scrape it around and, and, and have not much fun playing it. But if we had three sets of tees, uh, uh, to me, that would be good. Uh, seven, eight, nine, they all require more maintenance. They all require more water. Uh, make it simple. Make it fun. Less is better. Uh, in this case, more is not better. It, got, it also in, impacts or has an impact on on there are certain players who, who do want to go back. They want the tees to be marked back. They want to feel like they're playing a, a tougher golf course. That that mentality is still very much alive. Um, we talk about it on this podcast all the time. I, I, it may be diminishing, but that's a that's a legitimate thing to consider as a as a designer, as an owner, as a club. You had you do have a certain element of your membership that um, likes golf for the challenge. They want to feel like you know every once in a while they want to go back and 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 play them the mixed tees. You know the the far back and then the one set up and um, so. It's a temptation when you have too many tees. It's a temptation that you're playing into that mentality. Yes. And if you kind of took that away, uh, may, maybe you'd lose that to some degree. Um, Agreed. Yeah. The, one one last thought on what what Tom said was a really interesting concept that I don't hear spoken about very often. And it's it's the concept of what when you miss a shot or you get in a position what degree of penalty is that extracting he talked about quarter shot and half shot penalties which is a a, a really nice way to think about it you uh, water is or out of bounds is a one or two shot penalty like full strokes whereas you know when you have enough space on a golf course like the prairie club just to use that as an example you can really start to get into these gray areas where you're not you're not inflicting serious wounds on people but you're just kind of nudging them out of position where over the course of a round it may add up to a stroke or two but it's not gonna it's not gonna be those doubles and triples you know you can make a double or triple there if you're you know playing poorly but it's it's not necessarily because the golf course is taking it out of you Yes, and he referred again back to the Lynx golf courses that he played on and that even if he if that ball went offline like he talked about, that he could always still find the ball and that he wasn't uh, seriously penalized. That's why I struggle. Uh, it's not a game for me, Derek. It's not a game for a lot of people. That's why I struggle with hole after hole after hole being set upon a body of water. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand that that how much fun that could be to watch your bottle, your ball go in the water, you drop it in a perfect laid position, and you hit a wedge and you, and you move on. Uh, having a stroke penalty hole after hole after hole, uh, it does not excite me. 
I was so glad that he talked about that quarter stroke, half a stroke, you know, uh, flub your putter, flub your wedge, flub your uh, chip. And so what? You get a bogey, but you're not, you're not penalized completely. You're not out of the hole completely because your ball went in the, in the water or, Mm -hmm. or you were, you were penalized so severe because you couldn't find your ball. I loved his theory about that and, and, and how we could all enjoy the game if we were, if we could, think about that aspect of architecture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you, you need to have the right landscape to be able to, sure. you, you need width, basically you need space sure. to, cause people do hit it offline and it's just, well, what's out there. You know, you want to give right. them as much grass turf uh, underfoot as possible, which isn't always available when possible, when possible, when possible, you know what I was yeah. going to ask him that uh, we didn't get to, and maybe it's, it's, it's best that we didn't, I don't know if, what kind of answer he would have been comfortable giving, but when I was looking through his uh, U.S. Open performances from the late '90s, and I listed the golf courses, I wanted to get his opinion. You know, I wanted to ask him if he has any sort of nostalgic feel for golf courses after after he's played them and he's had success. He competed uh, at uh, Congressional, at Oakland Hills, Olympic Club were three of the four, and Shinnecock, um, the ones that we listed. Well, three of those golf courses, two of them really have now, just this year when they reopen, have changed dramatically. Um, Oakland Hills is will look probably very little like the Oakland Hills South Course that that of 1996. Um, it's going to you know Gil Hans is really using that old Donald Ross imagery, those huge big bunkers that were kind of out of yes. character for Ross generally speaking, but they existed at, at uh, Oakland Hills South. That's going to be changed. Congressional is a complete blow up. I mean, it just kind of looks. It doesn't look anything like the blue yeah. course that always has of, me of his era uh, of his era absolutely yeah, yeah yeah but no like no trees just <laughs> you know that that um clean sort of uh reese jones style of bunkering is now yeah. chunky and and yeah. and uh weathered jiggity 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 yeah uh yeah exactly <laughs> like roughy frufty or rumpy frumpy <laughs> as, as dave axlin says um and, and then you know gill will also be doing something to the olympic club uh, yep. And it, it'll probably won't look anything. I imagine it's going to be a little, little more open, maybe detreed right. if possible. Anyway, so I just wanted to, to see if he would have had anything to say about, you know, does does it is it part of the the life cycle of courses that they they change sometimes dramatically, or is is there something to be said for uh, preserving even these golf courses that don't look like they did when you know a hundred years ago when they opened, but they existed in this right. form for quite some time like where does he fall on that line i don't think he would have answered you i i think he would have and i hate to speak for the man uh uh, we should have asked him you're right good question i don't think he would have because he would look at it as a player uh not as an architectural feature but as a player feature how he hit that shot what he remembered his emotions that were he was going through that's what i think he would remember I don't know that that he would look at it as, you know, I didn't like the height of that bunker there, the surface of the green. I think he would only react in a player feature. But that's what I was so impressed about him, Derek, is that he was able to separate the player when it was time to turn to architect and yet not impose those exacting shots that he was trying to do back then. And it sounded like to me that on his next adventure, uh, uh, into the, in, in the Minnesota area that he was going to try to do those things, Derek, that were 
compatible for all of us instead mm-hmm. of him. So I don't think he would have answered that question. I think he would have only thought of it as how I played it, the memories he had, how he almost won or he did win. Uh, I, I don't know. I might be wrong. I might be totally wrong, Derek. I don't know. Well, if we ever get a chance to talk to him again, hopefully we will. Yeah. He'd be a great guy yeah. to have back on the podcast and talk more. And um, a, a, as we mentioned, he does have a big project that will be beginning soon in Minnesota, up in the Brainerd yeah. area, and yeah. which will include a, a, a new 18-hole course. It's a renovation, yeah. but also within an addition of an 18-hole golf course in that northern Minnesota uh, wooded climate so it'll be very different than the prairie club so it'll be interesting to see how he can he can take these ideas that that he spoke to us about and and uh put them into a almost a mountainous wooded lake country setting in northern minnesota agreed and for the question that you wanted to ask about uh, how he how he would have reflected back on olympic oakland hills and and those golf courses what I wanted to ask, and I just felt like we, we ran out of time. I wanted to ask him about the team that he has built, uh, the Chris Brands. Mm-hmm. Now, how did he hook up with Chris Brands? What were, what were the qualities that Chris Brands brings to his, to his uh, design uh, team? The, the shapers that I know very well of that he uses to, to create his features. He knows and he realizes that the team is as important as Tom Lehman and how refreshing that is to hear that the team is as important as Tom Lehman. Uh, sometimes, you know, <laughs> us uh, uh, golf architects, designers, we get to get to a little be too full of ourselves. Yeah. If, you, if you know what I mean? No. You know, it's, <laughs> it's all about well, it's me. It's like you guys are. I, I love my favorite quote was. You know, Ron Witten once said, you know, golf architects are the most insecure bunch of people I've ever been around. And yet at the same time, they're full of themselves. You all need therapists. And what is so cool is that that he was so quick to to bring out the team uh, that what Chris Brands and him is doing. I'm, maybe we ought to have Chris Brands on uh, and talk about his his influences. But the team was important and uh I don't know, man. Uh, I just think he has a lot to offer. I look forward to seeing what he's what he's going to do. I didn't talk to him about this, and I know you don't know this, but I did a golf course for the Dye family in Rancho Santa Fe, California. He redid that golf course. Mm. He redid the Rancho Santa Fe Farms. Have you and seen it? I went back. Yeah, I went back and saw it afterwards. So I had like a fifty-two thousand questions for him on the Rancho Santa Fe Farms, but. Heck, you guys need to get there? out on the golf course and play together. That's when that's when you can really <laughs> get what you you're, what I, get the information you're looking for. Agreed. But you know what? I would end up having to teach him how to play the game. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Hit, yeah. The, I, hit the driver we, on the par three. Yeah. We'd have, I'd have to show him how to play, you know, how to, but I had so many questions about the farms and, and what he saw there as compared to a die design. So many questions for him. Uh, he's got so many things that he's going to do. Uh, I look forward to seeing more of his work. Uh, should be fun. Yeah, yeah, and and hopefully um, everyone who's listening to this podcast now has uh, a real good sense of of Tom's ideas and what he likes in architecture yes. and what he's uh, yes. looks to do when he is on site and what he wants to create. So um, you know, I think, like I said initially, we all kind of have an idea of who Tom Lehman is as a player. Now yes. I think we have a pretty good idea of, of how he thinks architecturally, which is really, really nice to hear. I agree. And I'm so glad he, he came on to talk to us. I really wanted to go and talk about the desert golf courses he was doing down in Tucson and in, in, in the Phoenix area. 
And I thought to myself, well, there's so many different ways we could go to talk about architecture, mm-hmm. the player versus the architect or the designer. And how do you mold those two? How did Ben Crenshaw do it? How did Jack Nicholas do it? You know, how did the old timers do it? Donald Ross, uh, C.B. McDonald, the good players. And I just think every chance you get to talk to a player of Tom Lehman's caliber, of Ben Crenshaw's caliber, of Jack Nicholas's caliber, how they flip the switch to go to architecture. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It was nice to hear Tom's side of the story. Agreed. Well, let's wrap that up, Jim. That was a great talk. Thanks to Tom uh, Lehman for joining us. And uh, we'll be back with another other excuse me we'll be back with another episode of the salon uh, at some point soon thanks jim that was fun you sound like me derek <laughs> <laughs>